music. It's not just part of our daily lives, it's part of our wrestling fandom as well, and it has been for decades. That's where this show comes in, Music of the Mat, the podcast devoted exclusively to the music of pro wrestling, hosted by Andrew Rich. Hey, that's me. Each episode delivers a different topic with a variety of great guests, fun conversations, musical analysis, and of course, a heartfelt pun or two. New episodes drop every other Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. Check out Music of the Mat only on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Welcome back to another special episode of The Good, The Bad, and The Hungy here on the Voice of Wrestling Podcasting Network. I'm your host, Tyler Fornis, and with me as always, Fred Moreland. How are you, Fred? Doing well. How are you, Tyler? Well, as you can tell with the dog in the background, we're doing great here out in Minnesota. The perfect Um, audio we always do. Yeah, hey, everybody loves the doggos. And we have a very special guest today uh, from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter and uh, basically uh, legendary Dave Meltzer. Dave, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. I Fred's helped me out a lot, so um, I was very happy to do the show with him. We really appreciate having you on. Uh, we're going to do a little mailbag today, but there is one thing I want to ask you. Uh, first of all, uh, since it just happened last night, and uh, the good, the bad, and the hungry is our uh, it's our podcast, and we primarily focus on AEW. So I feel obliged to ask you about the Kevin Sullivan move last night. Uh, it came out that Kevin Sullivan, uh, who had been with the company basically since the beginning, uh, was uh, fired by AEW at the decision of Mike Mansuri, who came yeah. in uh, from WWE earlier this year. Uh, there's a report, uh, and you talked about this on Observer Radio uh, overnight, um, that uh, there's people that are unhappy about that uh, backstage in AEW. A uh, big part of that is just the uh, visuals of a former WWE guy firing a day one AEW guy. Um, what do you think about this move in general? And also, what do you think about the atmosphere backstage in AEW and just how uh, just how things are going there. Is it, is it an, generally an unhappy locker room? Or is it a small group? Like, what do you think right now? Um, well, I mean, as far as like Kevin Sullivan, um, yeah. I mean, most people thought he did really good work. He worked really hard. I was surprised, um, you know, at, at, at it. Um, but, you know, it just, you know, I mean, it was what it was. I know some people were unhappy Tony Khan didn't step in, you know, and, and thought that Kevin should have stayed. As far as like the background and everything, it's... Um, it's kind of varies, you know, it's like, it's interesting because a lot of the, there, there's, there's a prevailing um, perception um, that AW is doing poorly. Um, and, and, you know, when I, in some categories, if you look at how show advances, they are, um, I mean, it, you know, a lot of the advances other than like London and Nassau, but, you know, um, Tonight is looking awful. Uh, I believe it's Montreal. Uh, their collision taping tonight is. At, yeah, yeah. Well, we we knew Montreal wasn't going to do that, but was, you know they may they they may do okay with the walk up and and the Wednesday. You know, you're doing two straight shows in the market, and the Wednesday shows the Wednesday show will do well. 
um, by current standards, but I would have liked, you know, I mean, debut in a hot wrestling market like Montreal. Um, I think if it was like a year, 18 months ago, you know, you'd be looking at, I got to think 8,000 plus, you know, and, and they're obviously not going to come close to that. No, so, so not uh, even half that. Well, tonight they won't. Um, yeah. yeah, they'll do, they'll do better than half that tomorrow. But, you know, part of it is collisions are hard to sell in Canada because they don't even get it on television there. Yeah, true, true. Yeah, the, um, but aside from that, I mean, like revenue wise, you know, the company's had incredible growth and pay-per-view is good. And, um, you know, the ratings are, you know, they're up and down. I, the, the weekend ratings haven't been particularly good, although this week was up and, um, the Wednesday ratings are always very good. So it's, um, you know, but there's, I think that the nature of what's, what's going on there is there's so many good wrestlers there and there is only a limited amount of television time. And so, so many people are just kind of on the shelf. And when that happens, you're going to have unhappy people. I mean, when they sign when they signed that many people, it's inherent. Everything could be going great. And you're going to have unhappy people just like you had in WWE. Um, you know, guys that weren't getting, you know, there's going to be guys that don't get a lot of TV time and don't get a lot of angle time. And they're going to be unhappy um, because it's a different generation of guys. You know, the old generation would just be, I'm making free money. I'm not having to work. This generation really wants to be a good wrestler. And yeah. the fact that, that they're, you're making your money is the same either way is doesn't matter as much as you want, you know, you want to be creative and you want a good career and you want a legacy. And, you know, it's really frustrating because there's, I, I don't know that anyone is a hundred percent happy with their lot in any, in any company, but there's a lot of guys that are, you know, kind of sitting on the bench and women too, where you go like, how come we haven't seen this and how come we, you know, and it's, those are valid questions and it's, you know, um, there's there's no way with a roster that big that you can service that many people. That's just the, that's just the reality of it. Yeah, I, I would agree completely. And uh, I, I kind of want to shift uh, focus here, Dave, for a second as we get the squeaky toy in the background um, to wrestling media. And you have been involved in wrestling media for the better part of the last five decades. But it, being involved in sports media myself with USA Today, it's it, I kind of see some flaws. And I, w- I wanted your take on how wrestling media has evolved or I guess in this fact devolved into the kind of the spaces now where you have a few people who practice regular journalistic integrity and then those who are doing the exact opposite, um, whether yeah. it, it be both like malicious or just you're just allowing fans in the room and that's not really helping anybody. I kind of wanted your opinion on what the landscape looks like, maybe how we can fix it and how we got here. I don't know how to fix it. Um, It's just, I think it evolved because there was no such thing and there's no barriers to entry. And, um, you know, it's funny because when I was doing MMA, um, the people in, uh, in, in real sports thought, Oh, you know, like so many of these MMA guys are just fans. They're not real sports writers. And then when you go to wrestling, it's even accentuated even more. I mean, how many, I mean, there's some, but how many have, you know, legitimate backgrounds and, and a lot of it is just, I mean, I, I find it really sad because so much is just like clickbait for headlines and, and, and things like that. And, um, you know, and, 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 and there's also an evolving um, change in the audience. The audience wants their whole story in, you know, 300 words 
And in some stories, you don't even need 300 words. And in other stories, you need 3,000 words. And um, I don't think people, I mean, there's people who have the patience for it, but a lot of people don't. Um, and, you know, it's, it's um, and, and like everything, everything that's rumored anywhere becomes news immediately, whether true or not, which is a really tough situation for sure. You know, I mean, like as far as like checking and stuff, um, you know, but, you know, it's, it is what it is. But I mean, like, um, when I see, you know, media scrums and everything like that, when it comes to, you know, both AEW and WWE, um, there are obviously very real reporters and very real questions. Um, and they're usually uh, in the minority. You know, I mean, sometimes it's just, it's, it's stuff where it's like, you know, like, uh, it's stuff that you would never see at an NFL game, put it that way. But some, I mean, there are some, yeah. there are some very, very good people in this. Um, mm -hmm. Some very, very smart people who, who do understand um, their role and, and understand the business. And then there's a lot of people who, I like this. I don't like this. Why are you doing mm -hmm. this? Or just, you know, trying, you know, whatever, you know, there's, it's, it's yeah. just, a, yeah, it, 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 it varies. Like you can't blanket everyone. You know, that would be mm -hmm. totally wrong. But is it as good as in other sports? And the answer would be no, it's not. Kind of off of that, Dave, because I, I think the media scrums are a really interesting angle of this because it's not just reporting news. I mean, I, I, I do a lot of aggregating myself. I do uh, a little bit of news reporting here and there, but the, uh, a lot of my job is more analysis based. Do you think the scrums have been a net positive or have they actually become a negative because the... The, the concept of scrums is great. You want media access. You want to be able to ask like tough questions, but we're seeing in a lot of these scrums that even with the good people in the room, as you kind of say, the ones that are smart, the ones that are journalists and practice that we're not getting as much of that element out of it that we might, might normally be able to. And like you said, other sports, do you, do you still view these scrums as a net positive for the business and industry? Um, they're, they're a positive, um, you know, because you do get some stuff. I think WWE, um, you know, for the most part, and we'll see how this evolves, but what I have seen, you know, from WWE is that, you know, they want to do hundred percent storyline. And once you're doing that, then it's not, um, you know, it, it, it and, and they're not really very open with, um, they're not really that open, you know, I mean, like in some cases they are, but really, really not that much compared to anything else um aw it's 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 completely up to you know kind of um you know each individual is different you know like like if you have brian danielson out there you're going to get a lot of good stuff if you have tony khan out there you're going to get very very detailed long answers and if you um you know listen to everything you can get a whole lot out of it but you also have to have the right questions to be asked if not you know you're not going to get anything valid if the questions are are bad um, so it depends on the questions and it depends on who the, the person is, you know, and, and, and how open they want to be. Um, a lot of the storyline stuff, it's kind of, um, you know, it's like, it's wrestling's always had that thing. It's like, uh, do you, do you answer in storyline? And I mean, and, and even with AEW, you know, I mean, Tony Khan will answer some questions in storyline and then he will answer some questions, you know, on business as, as much as he can. And then sometimes he'll just not answer, you know, uh, because he doesn't want to talk about those things. And, um, but it's, he's never, um, making fun of you for asking questions. I've seen, you know, Paul Levesque, like, uh, somebody asks a serious question and he tries to like turn it into a joke. So it's kind of like, you know, 
we only want the, the fawning questions. And so, um, but I mean, it's not always, I mean, like on the, um, when Paul did the, the scrums, I mean, I, I thought he was, I thought those were a positive, not all, the, you know, it's like you had a lot of questions that weren't the best, but when you had a good question, um, he acknowledged it on the, the, the phone scrums, the live ones I've seen, are because, especially because they're streamed on Peacock and everything like that. They're way more of an entertainment storyline aspect than a real scrum. And, and so, so those to me are their storyline, you know, it's fine. And it's fine. You know, it's, there's nothing wrong with that, but I don't consider that real, uh, you know, I mean, encouraging real journalism either. Uh, kind of segueing into the mailbag part, I'm going to start with a question that kind of came up when I was talking with my wife. Um, she is a physician who specializes in infectious diseases, and uh, it was interesting to watch uh, the Hangman Page Swerve Strickland match with her, with uh, <laughs> all, all the blood. Um, she had some opinions, um, but yeah. she wanted me... Wanted me to ask you about uh, AEW's wellness policy, and uh, in two specific ways. Uh, one, do you know if anyone's actually been suspended for violating it in terms of uh, you know uh, substances that they shouldn't be taking? Uh, or what's their testing like? And uh, does it? Come I, I, don't, I, I don't. I don't. I don't believe AEW tests. So really, if you don't test, um, you're not going to be not suspended. Catch anyone. Anyone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know that anyone is is testing regularly these days. I mean, yeah, because when was the last WWE suspension? Was that Roman Reigns in like 2019? Um, yeah, I, I mean, there, there, it's been it's been years, and you know, it's like when you have 200 people on the roster and 100 on the main roster in this business, um, you know, you you know, even even if most of them are, are going to be clean and most of them are and everything, you're never going to get 100. percent So when you're having no suspensions. Um, that's kind of telling me that, uh, um, you know, you're, I don't know, there's something, there's something, um, it didn't like, put it this way with UFC, the penalties are much, much, much higher. And we hear about guys failing left and right. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, it's not like it's a six week suspension with UFC. It's like, you're, you're talking six months, you're talking two years in some cases for, for, for some things. And even then you still get people who fail. Um, and it's, it's, and, and so that's telling me, you know, and, and there's more pressure. I mean, like with UFC, there's certainly, there's different pressures, um, you know, whether it's pro wrestling or, or MMA, as far as drug use goes, I mean, with pro wrestling, because of, uh, you know, you have to, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot more matches and there's a lot, a different style of physicality. Um, it's not the scariness of getting beat up, but there's way, way, way more emphasis on how your body looks mm -hmm. as a wrestler than when you're a fighter. If you're a good fighter and, you know, you don't have a good body, you're still a good fighter. Um, if you're a great pro wrestler and you don't have a good body, it's really very difficult to get a job with WWE. Not impossible, but still, it's still a, a you know, and, and, and for women, and there's always going to be outliers, don't get me wrong, but with women, it's even harder than with guys. You know, I mean, they're, they're judged way more on their looks. Uh, what was the gymnastics book, by the way, that you had mentioned uh, previously on one of your shows, uh, like Little uh, Pretty Boxes or something like that? Uh, something like oh, 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 the gymnastics book from years and years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty Packages or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I need to read that. Um, but yeah, my second question, because, uh, well, I, you know, part of this was I was reading your 2014 uh, Observer book last night, and uh, I got to the chapter about um, premature deaths in wrestling and how much of a role, like, performance-enhancing drugs like steroids played, a, you know, in 
played a role in those early deaths. And, um, you know, I'm concerned about that kind of coming back to some degree between painkillers and, uh, and, you know, like steroids, you know, or HGH and that kind of stuff, which I know isn't as dangerous as steroids, but, you know, if it's not enforced, you know, I'm afraid we're going to get some. Well, it, it, you know, it, it, HGH is, you know, I mean, in, in any wrestling company, there's carte blanche to that. Because right. They're, yeah. They're not, they're not testing for that. And, um, you know, I mean, in, you know, some people will argue, I mean, some people argue that look in Hollywood, they don't either. In, and wrestling is not a sport. And, and there's a validity to that, but there's also um, competition, but the same competition does exist in Hollywood. But right. the, the difference is wrestling historically and not this generation. This generation is much different, but wrestling historically, one of the people go, well, why do you do this? And it's like, I lived through this and I know that unchecked um, and maybe it's a generational change. But we had a generation that was a disaster when it came to people's health and mm-hmm. many, many, many deaths. And um, because the drug situation was unchecked, that was a key reason because the death rate went down in companies that were doing real testing, um, marketably, you know, you know, marketably, you know, marketably. But now the reality is, is we're not having the young deaths. So it's not, um, I mean, we could again, but we're, we're not having it. So, you know, again, the schedule is easier. Um, the, the, the demands are different. The demands are more to be light and quick. And because of that being, you know, 300 pounds is not to your advantage at all today. In fact, every company pretty much when they get those big football linemen guys, you know, in WWE, when they recruit them, you know, they try to get them down and wait a lot. You know, and um, they're not at going in there and going like, hey, we want you to look like Hulk Hogan. You know right. what I mean? Um, whereas another generation, it was all based on looking like Hulk Hogan or looking like you can stand next to Hulk Hogan, which is a pretty tough thing to do, you know, for a normal for I mean, not even they weren't normal people. You know what I mean? But I mean, even for genetically gifted big people um, standing next to Hulk Hogan and not looking ridiculous um, was difficult. Yeah. Uh, and just playing, uh, going off of the uh, medical aspect of things too. Do you know if AW, since they allow blade jobs, uh, do you know if they do any testing for HIV, hepatitis B, C? I, I do not. I do not know that, but I sure hope so. I hope so too. Um, yeah. Just something that uh, Nicole and I have talked about before. So uh, certainly hope they're doing it on a regular basis too. Yeah, uh, I completely agree. I, I'm not a big fan of the the, the blood um, at all, especially the the amount of it. But they're going to do it. It's part of. It's been part of their mo of being different, and they do have to be different. Um, I think they go overboard with it sometimes, um, and I don't know if that's a good thing. I mean, it's a good thing for some of the audience, and it's not a good thing for um, a lot of the audience too. You know, I've watched a lot of. You know, I think that that that, that heavy heavy blood wrestling limits your audience, um, and um, they do heavy heavy blood wrestling, but. At the same time, no blood wrestling. You know, you want to do something different from the the market leader. You have to be different. And that's one of the ways that they're going about being different. Tyler. Dave, I I think one of the really interesting things about uh, the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame is that every candidate is so different. You can have a lot of arguments about different candidates based on the three criteria you've laid out. And um, one of our listeners, Matt, has a question about Super Dragon. And I think... His case is fascinating, and I'm not quite sure how good it is right now, but I think it could 
grow over the course of the next several years because of PWG's influence on modern day wrestling. And you can look at uh, early day NXT when it was essentially PWG style and how that's evolved. And you can contribute that to a lot of AW success. Where do you sit with Super Dragon as far as an influence case in professional wrestling? Because, I mean, he's he's a decent enough worker, but I don't think that's really going to contribute. No, he's not going to. He's not getting in as, as, as a wrestler. No. As a promoter, that's an interesting one because, you know, very few promoters get in and should get in. Um, and he was not what you would call, you know, he never ran a full-time territory or anything like that. But PWG was special. You know, I mean, I mean, again, like um, I'm, I know from wrestlers from Japan in particular that they that that was their dream is PWG because it opens up the rest of the United States and things like that. And PWG has been an incredibly influential promotion. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting person. I'd never really, nobody ever really brought him up to me before. I think I've actually suggested him to you before, Dave. So how dare you? Yeah. Um, just kidding. But yeah, I think there's a case there. I don't know if I would vote for him, but I actually think that he's underrated in terms of historical importance just because of. I would agree with that. I would agree yeah. PWG itself is very underrated as far as historical importance. Um, and um, I think that there's, um, you know, it's funny too, because uh, I think that there's, PWG has a very, very unwarranted negative stigma among some people who have never actually been and probably never even watched it because of the idea of something that it's that are attributed to it that, you know, and nothing, you know, nobody's ever perfect or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But but, um, but PWG has been an incredible positive uh, to me to wrestling for me because, you know, so much of what I learned about wrestling that was valid at one point I went to PWG saw the opposite and go, Oh, this is never going to work. And it does. And then it's kind of like, well, I guess you got to reevaluate wrestling, you know, modern days. And a lot of people don't want to do that. I I know like one time I was at a PWG show, the crowd was going crazy. It was an awesome show. Mm -hmm. And some older guy who was, you know, from the seventies, eighties, you know, just goes, none of these matches were any good. And I go, the crowd's going nuts for every one of them. And it's like, it's not how I was taught. You know, and it's like, yeah, I know it's not how I was taught either, but if, if it works and I mean, like, look, their business was good. They were selling at every show, um, the talent, you know, they had a great eye for talent, how much talent when you look through there ended up going places, you know, whether it's Japan or WWE or, or AEW and, you know, now and, and, uh, TNA later and, you know, ring of honor and all that. Yeah. But I mean, you could make a big, um, you know, you could make a case also of the influence of ring of honor. You know, I mean, because and Ring of Honor was a higher profile company than PWG. PWG was a more cult thing. I mean, people flew from all over the country to go to those shows, but they were only a couple shows a year. So you could do that. Um, you know, with Ring of Honor, they were doing shows every weekend. And, um, you know, Ring of Honor opened a lot. Of too. Um, going uh uh, we have another question uh, from Alan Farrell, which I thought was really good. Uh, he asked you in the mid nineties, uh, which of these did you feel had most staying power in terms of their, their style in Japan uh, shoot style? So like rings, Pancrase, UWFI, uh, Lucia Resu, so Michinoku Pro, Pro and Hamada UWF and uh, hardcore wrestling like FMW and IWA. And also in 2023, which style do you think ended up having the biggest impact both in Japan and worldwide? Man, that's a tough one. I mean, like, shoot style doesn't even hardly exist anymore, so it wouldn't be that. Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, deathmatch style does exist, but I think that the 
that Dragon Gate thing um, is more influential on mainstream wrestling. If you look at it historically, it's it's more. Um, I think that would be the one with the most influence. Yeah, you know, um, um, and it wasn't just Japan. It was like the whole. You know, I think that a lot of that came from, um, you know, tapes and then now internet where young guys who were watching wrestling did not limit their viewership to one company and one style. And when you start adapting things from every style and you get this mix, that's kind of like what, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of what a lot of the Japanese companies did earlier, where you had a lot of guys come in who were, who, who studied all different types of style and Lucha Libre was not this horrible bullshit that only happens in Mexico and all that, which it was stigmatized at and it doesn't count and all that. And it's not wrestling. Um, not, um, you know, kind of like learning that you can blend it in, you know, and it is different, you know, and there is stuff that would work in arena Mexico that, that doesn't exactly work, um, would not work in WWE and there's stuff in WWE. They went down there that would not work to an arena Mexico audience because they're just, they're completely different flows and styles and, and, um, psychologies really. Uh, and uh, we have one more Hall of Fame question for you, Dave, because w- we we love these conversations about the Hall of Fame because it's so it's so fascinating to discuss all these different elements and how candidates from those different elements kind of match up against each other. And this one comes from Adam Berger asking kind of like about the Japan region specifically. Um, there are very few male inductees that didn't headline in JWA, New Japan, or All Japan during their careers, but because a lot of the biggest stars are already in the hall of fame. How does this impact the region going forward? And does this potentially help um, influential headliners from smaller promotions like Hayabusa and Shima? I think that uh, it helps them now because right now, um, when I look at the ballot, um, there's, they're pretty much two of the stronger candidates. So yeah. um, You know, it's one of those things, whether it's Japan, United States, Mexico, if you're not in the major promotions, it's very, very difficult, maybe even impossible, um, you know, to not to to to, you know, get through because, um, you know, I mean, like, I mean, there's again, um, there are I mean, I guess you could say Ultimo Dragon, but, he, you know, Ultimo Dragon was in big companies at times and things like that. But there's very few of the guys who were not like all Japan, New Japan headliners um, that. Um, you know, are going to get in. And in the United States, nobody's, nobody's still gotten in from, from Ring of Honor. You know, nobody's gotten in from TNA exclusively. AJ Styles, it was New Japan and, and WWE that got him in. Um, TNA helped, but nobody's gotten in specifically based on that. And nobody got in from ECW. Um, that may change in time, um, you know, but AEW is a much higher profile than, than, than ECW. Um, I think people from AEW will, will eventually be getting in, although they haven't yet. Um, but I mean, as far as guys, you know, you know, with ring of honor, I mean, the Briscoes were the best case scenario and I don't know that they'll get in or not. You know, it's, it, 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 it doesn't look promising based on year one. Cause I thought year one would be the year with the sympathy and everything like that. So, um, and the uniqueness of, of Jay passing away, but, um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we haven't had that. We haven't had anyone from exclusively dragon gate get in, you know? Shingo's not in. He probably will. But we both know that, or we all three of us know that without the New Japan run, he probably wouldn't, even though he's been an incredible, incredible wrestler for, you know, 15 plus years. 
in the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club Slab Pack, and, and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards and yeah you can open it and look it's going to be junk you're you, you know what i mean like you know what you're probably going to get in those maybe you find that fun and sometimes i do sometimes i like just opening up cards and saying oh, hey look at some random cards or whatever but if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs and it ends up being you know almost nothing you know nothing of value not with arena club you can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading. So you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash VOWnet. Arenaclub.com slash VOWnet for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. What's going on, guys? This is Rich from the Flagship Podcast here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast network if i could have a moment of your time i'd like to tell you about one of our sponsors eufy video lock eufy video lock is a smart lock a 2k camera and a doorbell all three in one offering you triple security so you can have everything in one device rather than installing many pieces on your front door but it's not just for security Eufy Video Lock is also for convenience. No more concerns about losing keys, and you can assign passwords to your family members and see them coming back home via the integrated cameras. Some other great features we love about the Eufy Video Lock is it is easy to install and set up with just a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. Keyless entry, no more fumbling for keys when your hands are full. You never have to worry about kids losing keys or passing among renters. You also have 0.3 second, 0.3 second fingerprint recognition and one second unlocking again 0.3 seconds it's going to recognize your fingerprints 
and in one second it's going to unlock. And with the AI self-learning chip embedded, the more you use it, the more accurate it will be. Also, no battery anxiety. You have a rechargeable battery in there that could last around four months, and you will get a low battery notification before it runs out. Uh, passcode unlocking a remote control with the 2K Clear Sight. See who's at your door and control from anywhere through the Eufy app. With enhanced night vision, you can have optimized view even in the evening. You can also secure your package delivery by view and two-way audio. And then best of all, no monthly fee. A bunch of other brands out there are going to charge you a monthly fee. You have your recordings locally and you never have to pay for storage. Customer service, Eufy's got you handled as well. They are on standby for you 24-7 so you can enjoy a worry-free experience with an 18-month warranty, all backed by their professional customer service team. Contact them anytime by telephone, email, or live chat. Personally, as a homeowner, I love my Eufy video lock. I have the ability to see what's going on when I'm not home, when packages have has arrived, and, and really the thing I love the most about it, the ease of being able to lock and unlock my doors without having to fumble with my keys and reach in my pocket or wait, no, crap, they're in my backpack, all that sort of stuff. All this is happening while my dogs are barking at me. You know what? Not anymore with the Eufy video lock. I touch it. 0.3 second fingerprint recognition. One second. Door is unlocked. Much, much easier. So if you want to jump on board with Eufy Video Lock, search Eufy Video Lock. That is E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Again, that's Eufy Video Lock, E-U-F-Y Video Lock, or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door. Oh, we got a question here from uh, Gerard who asks, uh, do you think it's inevitable that a uh, weekly wrestling TV in North America is going to be on streaming? And if so, do you expect it will make it more difficult to attract new fans? And if they do go down that route, how could companies attract new fans under those circumstances? Yeah, it, it'll be, um, it'll be harder to attract new fans that way, even though everybody's on streaming and everything like that, it's going to be so much more important for word of mouth than accidental. Hey, let's, we're just flip, flipping around and we're seeing it. So word of mouth will become way, way, way more important in time. Um, and that'll be what attracts new fans. But I mean, like the whole thing is, is like the same way most people get in, which is someone who they know or something like that um, is a fan and just, Hey, watch this. And you like it. You know, that'll still exist with streaming, but it's it, it does change the game. Um, but in time, you know, like the, in time, the audience for 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 a big show on streaming, you know, you know, I mean, will be I don't know if it'll be as big as television um, um, be, because there's so many options. But at the same time, um, it'll be enough, I think, to be marketable for the shows, I think, you know, um it's it's unproven, but I think in time, you know, um, I just I guess I see it with UFC, but UFC obviously is, is on television, but so much of their other content is now streaming. And while the television shows draw many, many, many more viewers than the streaming shows, the fact is, is they went all all streaming for their pay-per-views and, um, you know, did OK. Um, so it's. um you know, and each each year, as 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 the generational shifts continue, um, you know, streaming is going to be more. It's it's already is more and more important, but still, you know, it's like, you know, we see the Thursday football numbers compared to everybody else's football numbers, and while the Thursday football numbers are still very very big, they're pale compared to Sunday and Monday. 
I'm very interested to kind of see how that goes. And this next question comes from Stacy, Dave. And being from Minnesota, like my mom actually went to high school with uh, Mr. Perfect and the Hennings. Oh, 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 so 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 Tom Zink too, and mm-hmm. um, and um, who else? Um, Nord and Darso. I think a bunch of those guys went to the same high school, right? Yeah, um, but both my parents went went to that same high school. Yeah, so. Brady Brady Boone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about the NWA and how uh, how Vince McMahon kind of infiltrated. And the, the two questions are, when Vince expanded nationally, is there a reason why he seemed to go after the AWA and Vern Gagne first? And then also along that same line, did he ever consider doing uh, a WrestleMania at the Metrodome? And with uh, Hogan and Andre having been huge attractions for the AWA. Um... I know that it's pro- I'm, I'm going to guess it came up, but I mean, as far as like Vince definitely had, um, you know, beating Vern uh, was, was more personal for, to Vince than, than maybe some of the other promoters. So yeah, he did go, but also, you know, a lot of the AWA guys and people that worked there were all close. And when some of them went and they could see the sinking ship that the AWA was, and it was very clear it was, um, you know, they asked their friends, Hey, get me in there. You know what I mean? So it was a combination, you know, like, you know, Hogan, you know, it's like, Hey, Hulk, you know, get me in, you know, please. And, and, you know, so, so it was kind of that, but, but, but Vince definitely had it in for Vern. You know, I think that was one that he really personally wanted, you know, he made him an offer, Vern laughed it off and, and, you know, so Vince had to prove himself and, you know, Vern ended up, you know, his company ended up going down. Was that the most personal scalp for Vince? Uh, from those early territory days? I think so. I don't think it was quite as personal with Crockett. It probably would have been with Ole, um, but Ole was out of the picture by, you know, as far as a major force by early 85. Um, I think Ole would have been more, you know, Eddie Graham probably was not going to be personal, um, you know, and 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 wasn't um, because, you know, his father and Eddie Graham, you know, had a relationship. Stu Hart wasn't really personal. Uh, I think Vern was the most personal, yeah. Uh, I'm combining two questions here from Andrew and Waffles on Air, uh, their given name, I'm sure, um, about the current status of AEW. Um, do you think they're doing better, uh, worse, or about the same as you thought they would be right now at this point in their history? And how has your perception of Tony Khan's ability to run a wrestling company changed since their launch? Okay, so revenue-wise... Um, probably stronger than I expected they would be at this stage of the game. Um, attendance wise, um, I would say today slightly in the range, in the range, maybe slightly below, but in the range, pay-per-view well up, um, well up. Um, as far as Tony Khan, look, I expected that there would be inexperienced issues that would come to the fore and there were um there's been frustrations um you know um it's a learning it's a learning experience um you know i mean i i he was dealt a lot of hands he was dealt he's been dealt a lot of really weird hands you know i mean who knew the pandemic was coming the fact they survived the pandemic you know was a real credit um the you know some of the handling of guys um you know i mean it's 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 
it's not, um, you know, I mean, like, like there's, there's certainly the thing of, you know, like um, compared to like the WWE people who, you know, the talent, I don't think, I mean, talent, the top talent ran over Vince too, you know, I mean, they really did, but not, I don't think it was at this level. And, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, I, everything was, I think actually doing pretty good. And then the punk thing kind of like from the day that, that um, Cabana got banished and then especially the scrum where he's sitting there and, and punk is doing all this and he doesn't shut it down and he doesn't fight for his guys. I think that was a real turning point. Um, And um, afterwards, I think he could have turned it back around, but he didn't. And a lot of guys, a lot of guys in his company, I think, got hurt because of the handling of that entire thing from start to finish. Um, You know, that that's one that they, you know, like Vince had a lot of issues and Vince played favorites and all that, but he never had the lingering issue where, you know, like, there were plenty of massive fights in the WWE dressing room and guys were not fired for them. Um, of course it was different here and everything like that too, but um, they were over and done with, you know, and there might be some bitterness with, with the participants, but it didn't just um, take up the promotion, so to speak, um, take over the promotion as it did. So, I mean, his handling of that, um, you know, that, that, you know, it hurt the company without a doubt. I mean, there's been pluses and there's been minuses. Um, you know, his willing to spend a lot, um, you know, is is interesting, you know, especially like on, on music rights and things like that. Um, you know, banking for the future. You know, we've never really had a wrestling promoter who banked so much on the future in the sense of future TV rights, you know, and, and, and going with that. And again, we're not at a point where we know if it's, gonna work out or not financially as far as profit loss goes we're still not there yet um and the value of the brand right now doesn't necessarily mean that'll be the value of the brand in five years it may be way way up it may be way way down um but um you know it's it's a different it's different you know i mean he came in as someone who um was in the you know he's been in many businesses but one of the businesses he's been in is the football business and he kind of had the mentality of how you run a football franchise business-wise. I'm not talking about personnel-wise, business-wise. And that is a completely different mentality from anyone who has ever gotten into the wrestling business pretty much ever. They're all about Friday's gate or next week's pay-per-view or, you know, you know, whatever. And, and maximizing profits as much as you can and screwing the boys and things like that. Um, that's always been what wrestling has been about. And he's, gone differently he's gone like uh more of a football team owner thing um so it's kind of changed and people kind of judge him sometimes as a wrestling owner um but the football owner thing may be more valid uh based on every other sport which is you know you know it's about building up your thing and getting tv rights and i mean the next tv deal is is going to be gigantic because it's the it's the one where it's like okay was he a success or was he a failure? Right now, it looks like, you know, while people want to paint him as a failure, overall, I would say he's been a pretty great success, but it's not 100% until he gets that next TV deal and the streaming deal. And they're basically solidified in what they're doing. Right now, we're still waiting and waiting. We're waiting for the streaming deal. We're waiting for the TV deal. And we don't know, you know, and um, 
you know, yes, and and the traditional metric as far as attendance um, is going down, and they have to deal with that one. Um, yeah, they just have to deal with that one. Uh, how much of uh, the current discontent backstage do you think can be directly traced to the uh, aftermath of that all-out brawl um, and the whole situation with CM Punk, uh, specifically the press conference, I think, more than the brawl? Um. There's so many factors because, again, like the stuff with with talent, with, with the large, large roster of good, talented people who aren't getting the TV time, uh, that was – they were frustrated. There were people frustrated before any of that happened. So that stuff I don't think was greatly affected by that. But for some people, you know, that thing, as far as the perception of Tony, um, yes, that 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 certainly has affected that in in a lot – with a lot of people, sure. Dave, I want to circle back to the Hall of Fame because the inclusion of uh, the Von Erichs um, that generated a question for a good friend of the show, South Dakota Jones, um, asking specifically about other potential groups and stables being uh, added in there, including the NWO and Four Horsemen, and uh, whether that would be um, a potential option. And if you were to do that, would you uh, induct the group as kind of just a construct or would you it be putting on the ballot like NWO would be Hogan, Nash, and Scott Hall? Or would it just be kind of what the group itself was? Yeah, I don't really like the idea of the group thing unless they regularly wrestled as a group. Like a tag team that wrestles regularly as a tag team, I would put them on the ballot as a tag team. If it's two guys like Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage who had some tag team matches and they were very influential. I would never put them in as a tag team and I don't have to because they're both in already, but um, I'm not, a, I'm not like, like if the four horsemen constantly for years did nothing but eight man tags or did the majority eight man tags, um, I would put them in, you know, they were the top heel group. I wouldn't put Gary Hart's army in Florida in or something like that, or NWO, you know, I mean, I, I would put Hall and Nash and you could put Hogan Hall and Nash as a threesome, but, you know, Hogan was mostly doing singles. Um, so I don't really like the idea of the group because then it becomes, you know, it becomes the whole thing. NWO, does Brian Adams get in? You know what I mean? It's like, then it's kind of silly. Um, so I don't like, like I said, the, um, I don't like the ideas of the group. The Von Erics were close. They did a lot of, um, you know, they did a lot, a lot of singles matches, um, but they did high profile trios matches and they were more of a, I don't know. I think that they were more of a tag team in a lot of ways, held tag team championships and things like that in trios championships when the trios championships meant something. So I felt better about putting them or the Freebirds in when it's a, a, a unit like that with um, Hall and Nash, you know, Hall and Nash are on the ballot. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the horsemen, Tully and Arn are on the ballot. Tully and Arn, you know, Rick, Rick traveled with them and he did promos with them, but he, and he, he didn't do a lot of six man tags and eight man tags with them. So kind of a follow-up here, Dave, because we talked about Super Dragon earlier as far as like an influence case. Would you be open to the idea of adding it like stables for a specific influence case? It, it would be a little bit of a different construct, whereas it wouldn't be like, hey, you're inducting them because of the they were wrestling together. But the NWO has a tremendous influence case on on the world of professional wrestling. You could argue yeah, yeah, that in a, in a different vein, Bullet Club does too. Would that be something that you would consider down the line? I'd consider it. Um, but, you know, Bull Club's another one. It's just like now, 
you know, I mean, if you're a star in Bullet Club, it's one thing, but just Bullet Club in general, um, you know, even though, yeah, they sold a lot of merchandise and they were big in Japan and, 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 and even for a time in the United States and NWO, obviously, look, you know, I mean, the NWO t-shirt, you know, should I, you know, I don't know, should we do t-shirt hall of fame, you know, this NWO in Austin 316, um, you know, I mean, they sold a ton, a ton, a ton of t-shirts. That's for sure. Uh, next follow-up question is from uh, Ryan Norcross, I believe. Um, the Confederate Wrestling Alliance. I had not heard about this before his question. On January 5th, 1996, ran a pay-per-view entitled Bodyguards versus Bandits. Oh, I remember that, yeah. Which consisted of one show. Did you watch it? Do you know how many buys it got? What was the deal with that? It got, it got. Um, I don't remember the number um, of buys. It was incredibly small. I did watch it. Um, yeah, it was the weakest pay-per-view or one of the weakest pay-per-views I ever saw. Yeah. <laughs> Is that the, the lowest bought pay-per-view that you're aware of? I don't know, because like some of the ones now, I mean, there are pay-per-views that are being bought by, you know, a couple hundred people, you know, some of the, the recent ones, you know, like yeah. before, before Billy Corgan took the NWO stuff off TV pay-per-view. I mean, it had very, very, very low numbers on te television. I mean, they may have done a little bit better streaming. Some of the impact, you know, numbers were, were, were very, very, very low too. Um, I don't think they'd been as low as that one though. That one, that one, you know, it had no TV backup. Yeah. I don't think that one did. You know, again, but there's been some very low. I mean, they've been under a thousands, you know, out there, and that's pretty darn low. Dave, um, this question comes from Daz Traction, and I, I find this interesting, especially because of how luchadors were used uh, towards the back end of the 90s in American professional wrestling. And the, the question is, uh, do you think that AAA could have been even more successful in America in 95 and onward and potentially have been that third promotion? if it wasn't for the collapse of the peso, because we know how great that one world's collide show was in 94. And it, it was, it's still viewed as kind of like a, a legendary pantheon show. Do you think that they could have been able to make a lot of inwards in America if it weren't for the, the peso? I think the key would have been if they could have gotten the right television deal and then um, gotten enough backing for the production and everything. Yes. Um, I believe that they could have been, um, a viable, you know, um, niche company. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, you know, and yeah, the peso cost them a lot of their talent and, and as well, but, um, I mean, they were successful in certain markets. Um, and they would have been, you know, it's, it's like they could have come to other markets and drawn pretty decently, but I don't know if it would have been financially successful. I think they needed the TV, to take it to the next level. They were on Galavision, but Galavision was, was had very limited exposure. Um, if they were on something like, like put it this way, if, if the, if there was a, something like Univision is today with the power of Univision today and the AAA of 1993 got on there in prime time, like they were on Televisa, um, I think they would have been, um, very, very successful running live shows in, in certain markets. Um, and, um, you know, they would have, you know, it, it would have been hard because of the cultural differences. But I think in time, those would have kind of worn down a little bit because, um, you know, I do remember when I would go to the um, the AAA shows, there were no, you know, there were almost no non-Mexican fans there. Very, very few. As great as it was, it was still one of those cultural things where, if you were a, you know, you either wouldn't know about it or you wouldn't, you just wouldn't go. 
You know what I mean? It was it was specifically towards that end. Now you could bring, you know, a Lucha Libre show um, and you'll have, you know, a lot of people who are not Mexican go to the show. Um, but but it doesn't have the fervor um, that, you know, because, again, Lucha Libre culturally in Mexico right now is nothing compared to what it was, you know, 30 years ago. It's it's so much smaller. You know, people I don't think really realize how big it was. You know, I mean, they used to have, you know, legitimately like 25 shows a night in Mexico City alone. Um, and there were, you know, more shows in Mexico than anywhere in the world. Um, now that's not the case anymore. Um, I mean, there's still a lot of shows, but it's, it's from a cultural standpoint, you know, it's like, you know, Mystico's big, but he's not as big as Pero Aguayo was. I mean, he, he had a run where he was actually, you know, that, that short run where he was very, very big, but, but it's not like Pero Aguayo where if Pero Aguayo came to California and there was a Lucha Libre show, I mean, he draw several thousand people. And I don't know that Mystico um, headlining a show, you know, just a local independent Lucha Libre show in California on his own is going to do that. Uh, when I was putting out calls for questions for this, um, to, you know, I got a, multiple comments um, about, you know, Dave Meltzer doesn't know how to rate matches. Um, <laughs> one, do you, uh, how, how tiring is that for you <laughs> as a guy that, you know, like it seems like all this work you've done and like people just obsess over your match ratings. And two, do you wish you just gave Undertaker Michaels five stars so people would have shut up? I don't really, I don't even think about, I don't even think about it because that would be kind of stupid to think about it. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's decades ago. Um, you know, I almost did. I mean, I was right on the border, you know, it's like this four and three quarters is five. And whenever I ask myself that it's four and three quarters, five's got to be like, no doubt in my mind. But I had a doubt. So there you go. And, um, you know, there are reasons I had a doubt, you know, I mean, a lot of people then had a doubt. I had two of the greatest wrestlers of all time and I had already rated the match who, who, talked to me about the next day and both of them had major qualms about the match. You know, one of them basically said that um, we could never do a match like that because it would, it would hurt the business because of the feeling of kicking out of so many finishers, Um, which, you know, I thought that was an old school viewpoint anyway. And the other one was, you know, like what, what, you know, what thought process, your turn, my turn, your turn, my turn, which actually kind of was one of the things I, when I was watching, it's like your turn, my turn, your turn, my turn. And, and I, you know, it was a fantastic, fantastic match. But traditionally, when I do watch you two, you turn my turn matches, I usually, you know, top them out at, at, you know, four and a half, maybe four and three quarters if they're exceptional. You know what I mean? I mean, like for five, you need something more unique to me. I mean, I may watch that, you know, I mean, it's probably unfair though, because when I watch older matches now, I always think that they're worse than I remember. You know, some people think, you know, if you watch it now, you'll revise it. And it's like, the odds are, I'll probably go like, I'll notice things wrong because from certain technical aspects, like, you know, body placement, body, you know, things like that. The guys are so much better and smoother today than they were in the past. And because of that, I notice people out of position so much more that I didn't notice when I was watching stuff in the eighties and nineties and I'll watch, or, um, you know, I'm again, like when I watch older matches that are, that I thought were five stars, I still watch them and I go like, yeah, it's a freaking great match, but I wouldn't almost, in rare occasions would I say, oh, that's a five-star match today. Some of them, there are a few, but, you know, like, and, the mo- and mostly those are the All Japan matches, really. 
not the American matches. The American matches, it always feels like they were, you know, if I watch them now, it's like, yeah, that's really, really good. But God damn, you know, it's like, I see stuff this good on TV every week, you know, and, you know, so um, there, like I said, there's exceptions to that though, too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel, Dave, that that kind of how you walked us through that that thought process is why you ended up breaking the five star scale? Just because wrestling today in a lot of elements has gotten a lot better than yes. it was 20 years ago. Yes, for sure. Just like it always, you know, I, I mean, yeah, yeah. The, 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 there's there's a level of thought put in the matches that's never been there before. Uh, this level of, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I guess thought, you know, just, just, you know, the mental aspect of the match is like before guys, you know, and it's like, look, it's more power to him, you know, Ric Flair going, going in the ring and not knowing anything that he's going to do, except he's going to do his spots and he tells you when he feels like it's time to do the spot and everything like that. And you know what I mean? It, it's, it's very different from people sitting there going like, this, you know what I mean? Like examining it and going into detail, but it makes, to me, it makes for a more, a, a more depth for the product. Um, you know, people don't see it, but I mean, again, like guys work on their big matches, guys work so much harder mentally on their big matches now than they did before. And, um, and it shows, and I, some people don't want to see it, but it's just, that's, I mean, I just remember like Dick Byer, you know, like, um, I was like Dick Byer story, you know, um, there was, uh, somebody had done a thing and it was some Dick Byer match and, they're going through all these details of this is why Dick did this and this is why Dick did that and everything. And I showed it to Dick Byer and Dick Byer just starts laughing and he just goes like, I didn't think about any of that stuff. I just went in the ring and just kind of felt like, what should I do at this moment? And that's what I did. Because I didn't, you know, it's like, he did this, this is why he did this. And this is why he did this. And he just started laughing about it. It's like, I didn't think that deeply. I just went out there and wrestled. Do you think that the level of in-ring, uh, you know, how much it's improved from uh let's just say 20 years ago to today. Uh, do you think that's a bigger step up than uh, like, let's just say 75 to 95. Mm, 75 to 95 was a lot too. Um, I think it's, I think it's ex ex accelerated in the last several years due to um, YouTube. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And people watching so many great matches and trying to emulate what they've learned from those matches from all over the world, you know, whereas before, you know, you learned from Matt, you know, if you were a wrestler, you learned from matches in in your territory. And if you went from territory to territory in other territories, but not necessarily all over the world, you know, and also, um, you know, you, you are taught, this is how wrestling is. And now I think there's more of an open-mindedness of um, wrestling can be whatever you want it to be if it works. And if it doesn't work, then you, you drop it, but there's no, I think that the, um, the, 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 the lessening of hard and fast rules that you were taught um, is also an aspect of it, which is also one of the reasons why some people, you know, hate modern wrestling for that very reason, because they want the wrestling um, that they grew up with and they want it to always stay the same. But what they forget is that it, it was never that case. Now it's moving faster now because of what I told you, mm -hmm. but, but I just, I remember in um, the late, 80s i got a bunch of tapes of great wrestling from the 70s and it was just like ah i was so disappointed in some ways because it didn't measure up to the late 80s with a few exceptions it was like it just wasn't as good and it's the same it's the same thing and and you know they were but they were wrestling for a different audience that wanted a different thing um 
and so it in and in, in every generation it always gets it always gets faster that's it's oh just it always does it just always gets faster that's just the evolution i think that's probably the same way in um movies and uh music and and many of many other genres is that it's um you know faster you know um you know lower attention span whatever i mean it's just you need you know you can't do the slow 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 stuff because people don't have the patience for it and um you know you're and the audience has seen so much you know so it's harder it's really hard on these guys though because um we've gotten in a situation where um you know these guys these incredible matches are normal and and that's you know it's it's a good thing but it's a sad thing too because like there are matches on tv every single week that if they were on tv in the 80s we'd be talking about them for months and 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 people remember them for 20 years and these matches are being forgotten three days later because there's so many of them um you know and and to have a standout match now you know even a, even the greatest standout match now you get another one a month later or a week later it's it's um you know it's not like the past you know um which is harder it's it's it is much harder on the talent and um you know and, and it leads to uh people trying to stand out in some ways when you stand out you get more dangerous and that's not necessarily a good thing and it's it, it's often not a good thing you know dave i want to go here um question from no no has to do with the new wwe and ufc um conglomerate at, ever since they merged and with endeavor um aw has done a lot of cross-promotional stuff they just did the the street fight with the Sega game. And they've, they've done a lot of that kind of promotional stuff. But this question is, do you think that uh, we might see more WWE and UFC crossover, including potentially using the octagon for cage matches, uh, kind of like they had with, they had a, a riddle Rollins match with Cormier as the ref. Um, do you think that we might be seeing some cross promotion in those terms with WWE and UFC? Possible. But I think it's more publicizing each other, which I actually haven't seen. Like, I thought that we would see on WWE pay-per-views, you know, ads or or appearances by UFC guys pushing their pay-per-view. And we haven't seen that. And on w, on UFC pay-per-views, we have not seen WWE guys, you know, you know, promoting their stuff. But that was the stuff that I was expecting, that kind of cross-promotion. The, um, on that day, WWE. WWE doing it and, you know, using an octagon as far as for a match um, because the the, the uh, trademark issue, you know, wouldn't be there anymore. Yeah, I could see that for sure. You know, more more from the more from the WWE standpoint than the UFC standpoint. I don't see UFC copying much about WWE um, at all. Even even the stuff WWE does well that they could incorporate. Um, mm-hmm. I think that they they like being um, what they are. You know what I mean? They've never gone the pride route of the big spectacle in that way. They've been, um, it's just what they haven't done. Do you think the lack of promotion on both sides is a Peacock ESPN plus thing? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't think so. I just think that it's just something that they, you know, I don't know why they haven't done it. I thought that it was a given and, um, they've, yeah. and you know, and again, and they've talked about it, you know, they talked about that exact thing that I'm bringing up. It's, Didn't it's, they talk about doing like, a weekend of events like you get a, a WWE pay-per-view and UFC pay-per-view same weekend same city absolutely for overseas you know more than but but for, but trying to get trying to get cities to pay lots and lots of money to them 
and we'll give you, you know, like a, a Saturday, a Friday night WWE pay-per-view and a Saturday night UFC pay-per-view. And we'll bring all these tourists in and it's two sets of tourists. They're going to be coming in because there's, you know, the, the cross, there's a crossover audience, but it's, you know, it just makes the weekend bigger in your market mm-hmm. and, you know, more, you know, more tourists might go, Hey, you know what, we'll go, we'll go to this and we'll also get this, you know, even though we're maybe coming primarily for this or we're, we're coming in for, for UFC, but uh, WWE's got a big show. Let's, let's tune in, you know, let's come in with the idea of, um, you know, having more tourists. Cause that's what these, these rights fees are all about, you know, um, tourists, tourism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave, um, you know, I know that you're coming up on your out, so just let us know we need to let you go. Um, I got one more question I do want to ask you first, though, if that's okay. Uh, it's yep. from Nicholas, and it's about Tony Khan and the relationship with uh, Warner Brothers Discovery. Um, do you think that he's too loyal to David Zaslov? Uh, he points out, like, uh, how much Warner Brothers Discovery is cutting costs right now and how David Zaslov seems extremely uh, cutthroat. And is it possible that Warner Brothers uh, WBD owns part of AEW? I think it's very possible. Yeah. Yeah. No one's proven it or anything like that. But, um, you know, I mean, I asked Tony directly and he didn't deny it, but he didn't, he wasn't going to confirm it, but he didn't deny it. He just said that he had a hundred percent of the voting stock, um, which I'm sure he does. Um, but I mean, as far as like, is there, are that were they cut in from the beginning um, or, you know, I mean, they had the, le- you know, like, WBD had, or it was, was just Warner Brothers then, but, you know, Warner Brothers had um, Warner Media. Warner Media had a lot of leverage on them in that first television deal because they were a complete unknown who, if they did not get the television deal, uh, they would have never gotten off the ground. So they had leverage to get something. Whether they got that, I don't know. Um, you know, no one's, like I said, no one has proven it, but he didn't deny it. Like, I thought that if when I asked that question, if he said no, I would believe, okay, it's no. When he said, I have 100% voting stock, I took that to, yeah, they have an interest. So, yeah. Would that be something that they'd have to disclose, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, as far as being a publicly owned company? Um, I don't know. They haven't disclosed it. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, um, I don't, I think that, that I've, I've, people have asked that, and, and I think that it be, for whatever reason, um, you know, but whatever. Yeah, no, I, 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 I've been told that they wouldn't necessarily have to, but, um, so, um, you know, that which just adds to the mystery, I guess. And, uh, one more thing I want to bring up and then we'll let you go. Cause I know that you, uh, I really appreciate the time you've uh, given us already. Uh, uh, East coast Johnny, uh, said that, uh, you mentioned when you, uh, talked about going away from the print observer and last week, that was the last print edition. Is that correct? Or is it this well, the one I'm working on is actually the last one. Okay, cool. So, uh, he, he, he said that you mentioned that you wanted to pivot to doing more real time reporting during the week. Uh, how do you envision that working? Um, just less time, less time on certain aspects that I do, you know, as far as, um, TV reviews, um, and more just, you know, contacting people and stuff. I mean, I'd still do it. I, I mean, right. you know, I mean, I, I don't think it's going to marketably change, but, but I'm, you know, that's something that interests me more than writing TV reports. So, um, I may do less TV reports and more stories. Um, that's, okay. that's kind of been my goal. Yeah you know, spend my time doing that, but it's not going to like, again, it's like when I have a story, I get the story done. You know what I mean? It's like, I contact the people I need to contact and and everything like that. I, I, I always make time for that. So I don't know that it's going to change 
marketably. Markedly. I always mess that up. Yeah. Uh, as somebody who does kind of the real time stuff, I, it, it's fun. I like it. Um, Dave, as Fred mentioned earlier, um, we greatly appreciate your time and uh, shedding some uh, light on a lot of these really interesting topics. Um, I know you you have a lot of cool stuff going on at The Observer, and most of our audience probably already knows these answers, but where can they find you and what what stuff do you have coming down the pipeline that everybody can be really excited about? Well, we've got all kinds of books at Amazon.com, um, which are Observer compilation books for different years. And, um, you know, I go through them from time to time and they fascinate me because, again, you know, I'm here and I don't remember every single thing that happened 30 years ago when I read it. It's actually quite fascinating to me. Um, but I mean, as far as the Weekly Observer, um, you know, www.wrestlingobserver.com. And I do the podcast with Brian Alvarez and Garrett Gonzalez. The Garrett Gonzalez show on uh, Fridays most weeks is... Uh, my favorite because we really don't do TV reviews and we just try to go in depth on the stories, but the Monday, Wednesday and weekend show with Brian, we go through the, the news first and then we do the TV reviews and talk about everything that's going on in wrestling. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I, I like it a lot. Dave, thank you so much again. And uh, Tyler, are we going to do a normal show this week or are we just going to skip the next? I don't know. My birthday's on Thursday, so we'll have to talk about it. Um, All right. Sounds good. We'll post something on Twitter. Um, yeah. Dave, thank you again. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks to everyone that sent in questions. Uh, apologies if we didn't get to them. We did our best. And uh, hope we all have a good week. Uh, Dave, have a great day. Okay. Thanks very much. Hello there, everybody. It's me, Gary Kidney, the co-host of You've Got to Be Kidding Me on the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. And I am Liam Jones, my full name, and I am also a part of the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network as a co-host for You've Got to Be Kidding Me. We are a TNA history podcast that covers TNA one month at a time. We cover all the drama, all the matches, all the Vince Russo nonsense you could ever want in your life. Have you, you heard of TNA? I bet you have. But would it be funnier if two people made jokes over it the whole time? Probably. So if that sounds like fun to you, check it out on this very Voices of Wrestling podcasting network and Liam will do bits and whatnot.